We serve a great God, don't we? Oh, come on. We can do better than that. We serve a great God. Did you guys see that snow this week? It's crazy, right? <laughs> Man, what a crazy week. You know, I was sitting over there, we were worshiping, and I just had this thought. Uh, I don't know if it's a good thought. It's a crazy thought, but I thought 2021's already crazier than 2020. Like, oh my, oh my goodness. Like, we were all so glad when 2020 was over. But it's already crazier than, than uh, 2020. Anyway, so I, I just had that thought. Like I said, I don't know if it's a good thought, but it's a crazy thought. But like that song that we sang this morning said, I'm going to pull it up because I don't know the lyrics, but I took a picture on my phone. We still will find 10,000 reasons to sing about God's goodness, whether it's sun shining or snow falling twice in a week in Texas, we're still going to sing about the goodness of God. Amen. Uh, a couple of uh, great things to share with you. How many of you love good news? I love good news. The first is, uh, you remember last month, uh, one of our members was very, very, very sick, uh, knocking on death's door. The doctors didn't know what the problem was, and so we were praying and praying and praying as a church and that's Yolanda Quintana, and she is here today. Yolanda, stand up today. Stand up, we wanna see you. Miracle right here, a total miracle. And when the doctors don't know what causes the problem and they don't know why she got better, we know that God touched her and raised her up. A total miracle. So we celebrate that today, I'm so, overjoyed in my heart to see the Quintana family back with us today. And also, you know that we have been raising uh, a missions offering to send to our missionaries. We were not able, because of COVID this year, to have our annual missions conference, but we still want to be a blessing to our missionaries. And, and our, we have, from our church, 16 missionaries that have, we've sent out from us that are part of our church family. And we decided we would try to raise the budget that we would normally raise for the conference and, and just raise that $25,000 and send it straight to them. Well, I'm very happy to report that not only did we raise $25,000, but you guys went above and beyond, and $32,000 came in for our missions conference. And so we were able to send $2,000 last week to all of our missionaries which was a great encouragement to them and a great blessing. And I just want to thank everybody who, who gave and who participated and whose hearts overflowed with generosity. And this church is being used by God to be a blessing, not only in San Antonio, but also in the nations of the world. Amen. Amen. We are in Acts 25 today, and, and looking around today, I'm seeing some new faces, which... I'm really, really excited about, and I, I'm just so glad that you're here today. And I, I want to let you know that at, at Destiny Church, we believe with all of our heart and all of our soul that the Bible, the 66 books of the Bible, is the authoritative, inspired, inerrant Word of God. We love the Bible at Destiny Church. Amen. And so 
when, when we gather uh, the, the Word of God and, and the, the reading of the Word and the teaching of the Word and the preaching of the Word, it, it, it's, it, it bears an important and, and significant part of our, our gatherings together. The reason I bring that out is because we're going through a series right now where we're going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the book of Acts. We're on Acts 25. The book of Acts starts in Acts chapter 1. Um, you're jumping in here. You're kind of parachuting into a story that I, I, I hope it will make sense for you today. If it doesn't, you can just go back in your Bible to Acts chapter 1 and, and get caught up when you leave today. Um, but the reason I, I, I say all that about the Word of God, and we believe the Bible's the Word of God, we should spend time reading it together, is we're going to look at the whole chapter of, of Acts 25 uh, today. And that might seem unusual to you if you're new. If you're not new, you'll just say, yeah, we'll look at a whole chapter of the Bible, no big deal. But if you're new, that might seem unusual, but that's what we're going to do today. So we're going to jump into Acts 25. I'm going to read the passage and then I'm going to pull out three important truths and principles for us today that, that really matter for our lives right here and right now. Uh, but let's pray, and then we'll jump right into the reading of God's Word. Father, we thank you for your Word. It is a lamp unto our feet. It is a, a light unto our path. It is your revelation where you have revealed yourself to us, uh, Lord, on the pages of, of Scripture. Lord, in your Word, you show us the most important things. You don't show us everything, but you do show us the most important things about living in the world that you created. You show us how that we can have our, our, our fellowship with you restored. Lord, though we have been lost because of sin and broken because of sin, and Lord, though we all have gone astray like a sheep and followed our own path, you sent your son Jesus, the good shepherd, who came and tracked down all of us stragglers and, and to seek and to save the lost and to bring us back into fellowship through faith in him and his work on the cross. You show us the, the most important things about how now we live in the world, not as a part of the world, but as a part of your kingdom, but yet still in the world. Lord, we're not here to live for our own glory, to build up our own name and for our own fame, but we're here to live for the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, help us as we look at this story, as we look at Paul and, and how he's being put on trial and all the events and circumstances surrounding his life. And as we see how he lived, not for his glory, but for your glory, Lord, that you would show us how we would not live for our glory, but for your glory alone, to shine forth your light in this world that is so full of darkness. Help us. Give us ears to hear what you're saying. Give us eyes to see today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Acts 25. Oh, well, we're going to start in verse uh, 27 of uh, chapter 24. I, oh, I love that. When I said chapter 24, did you hear that sound? It was all the pages turning. Oh, that just, that excites my heart. Anyway, um, Paul, Paul is being put on trial for, uh, he's being accused of crimes he didn't commit. He's being accused of starting riots. He never once started a riot. He's being accused of teaching against the word of God. He never did that. He always taught the word of God. There are these men who hate him uh, because they hate the truth. The truth is that Jesus was the Son of God. He came from heaven to earth. He brought the kingdom of God. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross to pave the price for our sin. He rose again on the third day in victory, defeating Satan, sin, hell, and death. He ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he's returning again one day to judge the living and the dead. That is the truth. 
There are people who in their ungodliness hate and suppress the truth in unrighteousness, as Romans 1 tells us. That's what's happening here. Paul is declaring the truth. There are people who hate the truth, and so they're trying to silence the truth teller. They're trying to silence Paul. He was arrested. He was put in jail. He was given a trial by an unrighteous judge named Felix. Felix didn't want to upset those who were trying to get Paul killed, the Jewish leaders. And so instead of upsetting them by letting Paul go free, which would have been justice, he puts Paul in jail and lets him basically be forgotten for two years. And that's where we pick up the story here in Acts 24. It said, when two years had passed, Felix, this unrighteous governor, Roman governor, was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Now, this past week, we, we were snowed in. Um, I don't know if you were. I'm, I'm sure you were. Kind of without electricity half the time. Water was crazy. Food situation was not great. That was four or five days, right? Paul is in prison for two years. His accommodations are probably worse than what you suffered over the last week. Two years. Food scarcity, water scarcity. He is in prison for two years. And what did he do wrong? He did nothing wrong. It's injustice that was done against him. So put yourself in Paul's shoes, in prison for a crime you didn't commit for two years. Now as we move into chapter 25, so a new governor has come in. A new governor named Festus has replaced this man named Felix. It says, after three days, Festus arrived in the province. He went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. Caesarea was the Roman seat of power in Judea, the region that Festus was the governor of. Jerusalem was the kind of the capital city of the, the Jewish seat of power. And so this wise governor, Festus, he's a, he's a smart man. He's a politician. He says, if we're going to have peace in this region of Judea, I have to go and meet with the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. And so when he gets there, he meets with them, and the chief priests, the principal men of the Jews, listen to what they do. They, they don't say, Felix, we need less taxes. Felix, we need better infrastructure. Felix, we need more religious freedom in this area. Felix, we need these roads built and the, this stuff done by the Roman army. No, or Festus, rather. They say, this is what we need. This is our number one agenda item. The chief priests, the principal men, the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning to ambush him and kill him on the way. So they have this whole plot of getting Paul put on a prison transfer from Caesarea to Jerusalem. And when Paul is on the way, they're going to ambush it and they're going to kill Paul. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly so he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. You have to remember Paul, of course, is a Roman citizen. And so he has certain rights under Roman law. Those rights were that he would face uh, his accusers face to face and, and stand trial. And so uh, uh, Festus stayed there for 10 or 8 days and he went down to Caesarea. The next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. That's the judgment seat. This is official, legal, formal proceedings. When Paul had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him. 
that they could not prove. They couldn't prove them because, of course, they were all false and were lies. Paul argued in his defense, and he said, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. I've broken no laws, Paul says. I've done nothing wrong. I'm an innocent man. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried by these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. Paul says, why do I need to go to Jerusalem? The, the, I am a Roman. I'm standing before uh, the Roman governor, the, the Roman judge. You, you know I've done no wrong. You judge this matter. Why send me back to Jerusalem? Paul knows the Jews very well. He knows that if he goes back to Jerusalem, he will most likely be killed. Verse 11, Paul says, If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Every Roman citizen had the right in any case to appeal to Caesar and in doing so, his case would be transferred to be uh, decided by the emperor of Rome. It, it would be like our case, uh, if you had a legal case, it going up to the Supreme Court. And so Festus confers with his legal counsel and tells Paul, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now the story continues in verse 13, when now the king of Judea, the king of the region, uh, Herod Agrippa II comes now to meet the new governor, and they're kind of having this, you know, kind of political get-together and, you know, the powers coming together kind of thing. And so King Agrippa and his wife, who was also his sister, Bernice, um, which tells you the kind of man King Agrippa was, um, he arrived at Caesarea and he greets Festus, and they stayed there many days. And Festus laid Paul's case before the king. Remember, uh, Agrippa is a Jewish king. He's the grandson of, of Herod the Great, which was the, the King Herod that was the king when uh, Jesus was born in Bethlehem and Herod had all the babies killed in Bethlehem. That was Agrippa's grandfather. So that's kind of the, the lineage and family he comes from. So he lays the case before Herod uh, Agrippa too, and he says, there's a man left prisoner by Felix. When I was in Jerusalem, the chief priests, the elders of the Jews, they laid out their case against him. And they were asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. They're asking that I put him to death. And I answered them, and, and this is Felix, uh, Festus rather, trying to appear very virtuous, very righteous. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make a defense according to the charge laid against them. So they came together and they made no delay, but on the next day they took my, I took my seat on the judgment seat and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, this is important, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, 
I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul appeared, appealed to be kept in the custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, this royal per parade, procession, all of their uh, you know, regalia, their, their crown, their robes, their scepter, all of their attendants, right? They come to this huge gathering with all this parade, all of this royal stuff. And they entered into the audience hall, this great assembly hall, with the military governors and the prominent men of the city. So it's this huge political gathering. Think the State of the Union, right? Everybody who's everybody is there. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. This is important. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appeared to the, appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him but I have nothing definite to write my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Festus is saying, I don't really understand what the issue is. I've listened to the Jews. I've listened to Paul. It seems like they're just arguing about this man, Jesus. King Agrippa, you're a Jewish person. Maybe you can explain to me what this is all about so I can write a letter to the emperor in Rome. And when he gets Paul's case, he can understand a little bit of insight into it. Now, there are three things I want to pull out for you, three ideas that are important for us in this text, important for how we live our lives today as the people of God. And these three ideas can be centered on these three words. I'm going to use three words uh, for the headings of these ideas today. The three words are justice, significance, and freedom. Justice, significance, and freedom. Three things that we all care deeply about. The first is justice. And Roman society, the Roman uh, Empire, uh, was in large part a very sophisticated society. We tend to think as, as modern people wrongly that people of ancient times were kind of all Neanderthals. They were all kind of like cavemen. They were all kind of, they weren't as enlightened and smart and intelligent as, as we are. And we tend to think that they were all kind of unsophisticated rubes, if you will. But that's not the truth. That's what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. We think we're just better than people because we live later on in time. Now, it is true that we have more advanced technology, but it's debatable on whether that's good for us or not. We do have more technology, but whether that makes us better or not, I think is seriously up for debate because we use our technology not to bring people together, but to divide people, not to benefit society, but Actually, in large part, technological advancements have been used in the war machine to wipe out vast multitudes of people. So there's a serious debate on whether technological advancement is always good in every circumstance. Nevertheless, the Roman society was highly sophisticated. 
These people were brilliant thinkers, brilliant philosophers, brilliant minds with regard to governance and governing structures and and how to govern people and, and to rule this empire. Sharp minds and thinkers. And they were a nation of laws, an empire of, of laws. They had elected officials, senators that ruled in the Senate, that made the laws, that came together and put the laws on the books. And the emperor's job was to make sure that these laws were enforced all throughout the empire. And he would appoint governors who would rule over regions to make sure that people were living according to the law. And they held up justice as a high value in their society. To to the point where even when our founding fathers were drawing up our governance structure of separation of powers between the three branches that we have, they looked back to the Romans and how they had set up their empire and their governance structure, which is why all of our monuments and all of our nation's capitals all look like Greek and Roman buildings. Have you ever thought about why it looks like that? Why does it look like that? Well, it's because they're paying homage to where they got their philosophical ideas on how to govern humanity. Anyway, they hold up justice as this high value, but five times in this passage, justice is being perverted. Justice doesn't do people favors. I don't know if you know this. And, And constantly in this passage, they're talking about Felix wants to do a favor to the Jews. The Jews are asking for a favor from Festus. Festus again wants to do the Jews a favor. It says that Festus knows that Paul has done no crime whatsoever. Well, if that's the truth, what is justice in this situation? Paul should be set free. Paul should be let go. He has committed no crime. All the governors know that he's committed no crime. Yet he stays as a prisoner. Why? Because justice is being perverted. These men who claim to be all about justice are not about justice. They're about political expediency. That's what they care about. They care about appeasing the masses, whatever it takes to keep the peace, even if justice is perverted. Well, what is justice? Justice is doing the right thing. That's what justice is. And in this case, to do the right thing would be to set free the man who has committed no crime. Amen? But they are perverting justice. Even while putting on this display, sitting on this seat, the judgment seat, we care about the law, we care about justice, we care about doing what's right, but they don't. They only are trying to maintain this appearance, this facade that they are doing the right thing, that they care about justice. But Paul is denied justice because these judges, these governors, are unrighteous. And there's a lot said about justice in our day. A lot said about justice. But what we as Christians, we as the people of God, we do not take our cues about justice from the culture. We we do not get our definition of what justice is from the political arena. We determine what true justice is by the word of God. It's God who determines what is right and what is wrong. That's God who determines that. 
Why? We live in his world. We live in his creation. He is the ruler of all the universe. He created us in his image. We are a part of the world he created. And so he is the one, God is the one who determines what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. And, and what is right flows out of his nature, flows out of his character. God who is perfectly good, God who is perfectly righteous, God who is perfectly holy. And so what is good and what is right and what is perfect and what is true and what is honorable and what is uh, of, 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 of true justice, that flows out of the nature and the character of the true, holy, righteous, just-seeking God. And so you, you can't... You cannot just redefine something that is evil and slap the word justice on it, and now all of a sudden it's good. It doesn't work that way. We as God's people must look to God's word to determine what is truly just. Now, as God's people, we should care about what is just. We should desire for there to be justice in our land. True justice, true righteousness in our country, in, in our political arena, in our government, in our laws. That's what we should long for. That's what we should care about as God's people. And I do think that there are times where th there is some overlap be be between the, the, the movements for justice in our culture and what God's word says is justice. There is overlap. And, and where there is overlap, where there is common ground, we should seek for there to be justice. If there's injustice in our world, according to the word of God, God's people should care about that. God's people should care about that. God's people should not turn a blind eye to those who are suffering injustice. Amen. And at the same time, God's people care about the truth. And God's people care about what is truly right and what is truly wrong. I'll give you one example today of a way that justice is perverted in our country. There's, there's this phrase that's thrown around today called reproductive justice. And there are people who advocate, they say, we stand for reproductive justice. Now, as a child of God, as someone who cares about what is just and what is right, I, you might be tempted to hear that word and say, well, I care about justice, so I, I, I care for reproductive justice. But you need to know that when people say the term reproductive justice, what they're actually talking about is a grave injustice. When people use that term, we stand for reproductive justice, what they say, what they're talking about is that a, a woman should have the right to kill the baby within her own womb. That's what they call reproductive justice. That at any point, at any time, a woman should be able to take the life of her unborn child. Well, God's word says that murder is a sin, that murder is evil, that murder is wrong. And so just because you slap the word justice on something, it does not make it just. It doesn't. Abortion is a, a horrible sin. It is a horrible crime. And I know that when I, I, I say that in a room this size, I know that there will be women here who have had an abortion. And I, I want to tell you that there is God's grace. There is forgiveness. 
If God could forgive the Apostle Paul who murdered Christians, God will forgive you. Your life is not over because you had an abortion. The, the enemy would love to lie to you and tell you you have no value and no worth. At the same time, I, I would minister those truths to you. I must also uphold the truth that abortion is wrong, that abortion is evil, that abortion is sin. Since 1973, over 60 million babies in the United States have lost their lives inside their mother's womb because of abortion. It's a grave injustice. It is not justice. But it is perpetrated by those who claim to be righteous, who claim to be standing for what is just and what is true, and they are standing for what is evil and what is false. And we see the exact same thing happening in this passage here. These unrighteous judges, unrighteous governors, they do not care about what is just and what is right. They're only interested in scoring their own, uh, centralizing their own political power is all that Festus cares about. And oftentimes that's all that people care about in the political arena in our country as well. So what do we do? We pray. We pray. We pray for our leaders. We pray for those in power in our nation and we pray that they would govern according to the word of God, which is true justice, which is the truth. Govern not according to the changing whims of culture, but to the unchanging truth of God's word. We pray for our leaders. We also pray that God would save their souls, that they would meet Christ not just to have a form of religion, to, to just slap the name Christian on them so that they can get votes, but to have a true encounter with the risen Savior and Lord Jesus, just like the Apostle Paul did on the road to Emmaus, and he was a changed man. That's what we should be praying for, for our leaders, that they would meet Christ, that they would be saved to the uttermost, as People used to say two generations ago that, that God would truly save their souls. We as God's people must be praying for them. Listen, if you're not praying for them, guess who is? Nobody. The, the church stands in the gap. We intercede. We pray. And guess what? God hears and answers prayer. So we pray that they would govern according to what is true, what is right, what is just, what is true righteousness according to the word of God, and we pray that God would save their soul and transform their hearts. Now, I want to show you something cool. You're going to like this. Though these men in power are perverting justice, they cannot stop the plan and purpose of God. Let me show you this. In Acts chapter 9, Paul was converted. This is some 25 years before Paul is standing before Festus. And in verse 15 of Acts chapter 9, the Lord says to a man, Ananias, who was to go and pray for Paul, he says, go for he, that's Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Some 25 years before Paul is in this moment, God had already decreed and declared that Paul would stand before kings and bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've been reading through the book of Acts. We've been tracking the life of Paul. He stood trial many different times, but guess who he hasn't stood before yet? A king. But guess who he's standing before now? A king.
Listen, God's plan and God's purpose cannot be thwarted. Though these men are unrighteous, though these men are perverting justice, the sovereign hand of God is pushing his plan forward. The plotting of these unfaithful men cannot stop the plans of our faithful God. God is working through the injustice, just as Joseph was thrown into the prison, uh, in Pharaoh's prison because of, of the lie that Potiphar's wife told. God is, is using this injustice to bring about his divine purpose and divine plan from all eternity. And so the truth is, God is sovereign and his will will be accomplished. And for us as Christians who live not a part of the world, who live oftentimes even persecuted for our faith, oftentimes throughout church history have lived under the uh, oppressive rule of regimes that tried to stomp out Christianity, we hold on to the truth that even the, un, the plans of unrighteous men will be turned into the good plans of our faithful God that God's plan cannot be stopped. This isn't an accident that Paul is standing here today. This was predetermined, the Bible says, before the foundation of the world that he would stand there that day and give witness, faithful witness to Christ. That's point one. Okay, point two, the second word today is this word significance. Significance. On the surface, as you read this story, if you only looked at the surface, we're going deeper today, but if you only looked at the surface, it appears that Paul's life is very insignificant. Paul is not a person who's powerful, according to the standards of Rome. He's not influential within Rome. He does not have a bunch of wealth and prominence. Paul can just be, by some bad governor, Felix, just thrown in and put in prison for two years and forgotten about. There's nobody advocating for him. He, he's just almost lost for two years. And it appears that his life is being dictated by these powerful rulers. Three times in this chapter, it says that Paul's being yanked around basically on a chain. Festus orders Paul to be brought in. Guess what Paul has to do? He has to go in. He orders him again to be brought in, and he commands him again to be brought in. He, he's, just, he's just bossing Paul around. It appears that Paul's life is being controlled by these unrighteous and unfaithful men. And so we would look at this, and we'd say, who is Paul? He's just this insignificant nobody, according to the standards of the world, according to the standards of Rome. These men coming in with their great parade and their thrones and their robes and their crowns, so much importance, so much significance, so much wealth. They order Paul in, this tent maker from Tarsus, and he's just there in chains. Now, we, we live in a world that, that believes that same kind of thinking that those who have power and influence and wealth are significant, are important, are valuable. 
and that those who don't have power and influence and wealth are insignificant. That, that's the way our world thinks. That's the way our world thinks. Our world thinks that if you have some power, if, if you're the CEO of a big company, if, if you have a lot of wealth, a lot of prominence of fame and, and fortune, if, if you have those things, then you are important, then you are significant. If you have a, you know, six million followers on Instagram, oh, you're somebody. But if you've only got six, well, who are you? You're, you're a nobody. You don't, if you don't have power and, and wealth and fame, you're, you're just a nobody. That's the way our world thinks. Therefore, to have significance, people think, in our, our world, you have to gain power, gain influence, gain wealth, gain notoriety, pursue fame, pursue fortune, to have value, to have worth, to have significance. And by whatever means necessary, survival of the fittest out there in the world, kill or be killed, there's people willing to stomp on anybody and everybody to climb and claw their way to the top, willing to sacrifice anything to receive wealth and, and power. We see it every day, people sacrificing their families, sacrificing their marriage, sacrificing uh, their kids, sacrificing co-workers, putting their faith in God on the altar of success. Because they believe that to have value and to have worth and to have significance, that they also must have power and wealth and fame and fortune. That's not the way the kingdom of God works. That's not the way it works in the church. The Bible says that every human life is significant. Every human life has dignity, value, and worth because we are created in the image of God. That every single life has significance. The kingdom of God is not like the way the world works. The world is out there trying, clawing to get power and fame and fortune. This is what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 20. He called his disciples together after they were arguing about who among them was the greatest. Jesus said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. He says, this is the way the world works. Their great ones exercise authority over them. They oppress people. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to, serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says in the kingdom of God, the way up is down. It's upside down. It's, a, it's, a ups, right, it's an upside down kingdom. It, it, everything we think in our natural mind, the way things would work in the kingdom of God, it's the total opposite. It's the total opposite of our world. Jesus says that you don't pursue power, you don't pursue authority, you don't pursue fame and fortune. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else will be added unto you. What's really interesting is that the most powerful and influential and significant man in that room is not Festus, is not King Agrippa, is not some military general. In fact, we wouldn't even know these men's names if they hadn't have interacted with Paul. 
The only reason you know about Festus and King Agrippa today is because they put a man named Paul on trial. Paul is the one who is truly significant in this meeting. Paul is the one who truly has shaped the course of human history. The argument can be made that over the last 2,000 years, no one other than Jesus Christ has, more, has had a more profound effect on the course of human history and the shaping of the Western world than the Apostle Paul. I want you to think about this. Truly think about it. Paul has shaped the world. His writings, inspired by the Holy Spirit, have shaped Western civilization and society. Not Festus, not King Agrippa. It's been said of the book of Ephesians that the book of Ephesians is pound for pound the most influential document that has ever been written in the history of humanity. Shaping culture, shaping the world. And yet here he stands as just some nobody in this room of people who are a bunch of pretenders thinking that they're somebody. The impact of this one man's life cannot be overstated. Now, of course, it wasn't Paul, but it was the Lord working through Paul. Before, Before Christ, Paul was a nobody. But when he met Jesus and was transformed by Christ and submitted his life fully to Christ, what God did with his life has shaped the course of the last 2,000 years of human history. And that's the point, really, is that if you too will have an encounter with the risen Christ and you will submit your life to him fully, go where he tells you to go, do what he tells you to do, follow Jesus, not live for your own kingdom, not live to build your own social media empire, but live to build the kingdom of God, the impact that your life will have cannot be overstated. You see, when you invest your life into the kingdom of God, you're investing your life into a kingdom that will never end. These other men, they were invested in a world system. They were invested in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire lies in ashes today. The kingdom of God marches forward. And it will never end. When you plant a seed in the kingdom of God, it will flourish into something that you could never even begin to imagine because it it is without end. It is truly eternal. You see, these men, they were invested in a system that was fading away, that was passing away. And we as God's people have been called out of that system. We've been called out of the world. We've been called out of the kingdom of darkness. We must allow the, world, the, the word to transform and to shape our thinking so that we do seek first the kingdom of God. And if you will surrender your life to Christ truly, fully, not just paying him lip service, but really surrender to him, what God can do through your life is beyond anything you could ever imagine. You see, as, the problem is, for us is, is we, we, <laughs> we live in the microwave society. 
We, we, we want it, and we want it now. We want instant gratification. The kingdom of God doesn't work that way. We, we have microwave popcorn because we can't wait for three minutes for it to cook on the stove. It has to be two minutes in the microwave. It, it's just, we have to have it instantly. We, it's a problem, it's a flaw that we have in our culture where we can't see the long term. We, we can't see what, beyond what's in, in, right in front of our nose. When we plant seeds today, what we're planting is a harvest that will not be reaped maybe 10 years, 50 years, 100 years, 1,000 years, a million years into the future. We plant those seeds today never knowing how they will grow, never knowing what it will reap. It is a long and slow process. Paul could have never imagined what God would do as he wrote that little letter in a Roman jail and sent it off to the Ephesians. He could have never imagined that. But he lived his life fully submitted to God. Up, up until about 30 years ago, the, the, other than the Bible, the number one best-selling book was called The Pilgrim's Pro Progress. How many of you have, have heard of that book or read that book? Pilgrim's Progress, Christian classic. If you haven't read it, you should read it. It's the number one bestseller other than the Bible. Do you know where that book was written? It was written by a man named John Bunyan. He was a pastor in England. He got thrown in jail for holding illegal church services. He was in jail for some 15 years. And while in jail, he, he could have gotten out anytime he wanted. All he had to do was stop holding church services that the government deemed illegal. He said, I must serve God rather than men. So he stayed in jail and he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. That, that book has been used by God to transform the lives of, of countless people. Paul Bunyan, forgotten in some prison somewhere. Totally insignificant by the world's standards. The Apostle Paul, forgotten in some prison somewhere. Totally insignificant by the world's standards. Yet when they live, you live your life, you may feel insignificant. You may feel that what you do doesn't matter. Listen, you're sowing seeds into the kingdom of God. Seeds in the kingdom of God. Let me, let me say, one, I, I know I'm going over time today. I'm sorry. None of you were here last week, so you're getting an extra dose. You can all, there was, there was, there was a handful of you. There was, it was a handful, trust me. Um, the roads were icy, I know. But anyway, one of the most marginalized and looked down upon uh, groups of people in our society today and belittled are some of the most important people in our society, our culture today. And that is moms who stay home with their kids. I, I, the world looks down on that. The world says, don't you want a career? Don't you want to do something with your life? Don't you want a this, that, and the other? If you want to truly be, have some significance, you must go out and, and make a bunch of money. That's what the world says. Now, if, if that's your path, great. But there's a lot of moms that are called to stay home and to raise their children according to the Word of God. And a lot of times it might seem insignificant, but it matters. It really matters because you're sowing seeds every single day. 
and you don't see how those seeds are going to bloom. You don't see how those seeds are going to flourish. You, you, you may not see it. The, the, the seeds you sow may come to fruition in your grandchildren's great-grandchildren. Listen, someone evangelized Billy Graham. But when you trace back, someone evangelized the person that evangelized Billy Graham. When you trace back that story, it, you go back a couple generations and you get to some, some Sunday school teacher that nobody knew, nobody knew of, and he was just sharing the gospel with a bunch of little kids in his Sunday school class, like three or four kids, and everyone looked down on it like it was just so insignificant, the biggest waste of time. When you invest in the kingdom of God, you are planting seeds that will grow for all eternity. We have to change our thinking about what makes someone significant. It's not according to the world's standards. It's not according to wealth and money and power. It's according to the word of God. We serve others. We love others. We give. We sacrifice. We shine the light of Jesus. We submit our lives to God. And then there's no limit to what God can do with that. Look at the little boy with his sack lunch. And look at the huge multitude. What can he do? What can it do? But when you take it, what you little you have and you put it in the master's hands, look at what he can do. Look at how he can be a blessing to others. Look at how that little gift of sacrifice can be used by God. And we have opportunities to do it all around us every single day. That's what is significant in the kingdom of God. That's what God cares about. That's what we should care about as well. Jesus put it this way, Matthew 13. He said, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in a field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air can come and nest and make its nest in it. The kingdom of God is like that. Small seeds. You look at it, you say, what's the big deal? What's the big deal if I sacrifice my time here? Blah, blah, blah. Look at what it's costing me. Look at the fruit. It's so insignificant. No. Small seeds that bring a great harvest. Paul says, do not grow weary in well-doing. There is a harvest that is coming. Jesus says to lay up treasure in heaven. The third word is the word freedom. I'm going to have to look at this some more next week. As the congregation assembles, they believe that they are the ones who have the power. Paul walks in, he walks in, in chains. However, in this assembly, though Paul is in chains, he is the only one who is truly free. He has been set free from the bondage of sin and death. All of these so-called great men of wealth and power, they are not free. They are bound in sin. All the money in the world cannot buy their freedom from sin, only faith in Jesus Christ. And next week in chapter 26, we're going to see Paul present the truth of the gospel to this great assembly. Though he himself is preaching in chains, he's going to show this assembly the true path to freedom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is the truth. Lord, thank you for your people that have gathered here today. 
I pray that your word would be a blessing in their lives, Lord, that it would not return void, but that it would go down deep into our hearts and produce a a harvest in our lives. Lord, transform our thinking. Let, Let us not think according to the pattern of the world, but let our minds be renewed by your word. Your kingdom, which is upside down to the way our natural mind works, is is upside down to the way our our world works. At times it can seem so foreign, but you've given us your spirit, you've given us your word, you've given us your power to, to live as your people, live as light shining for your glory in our world. Lord, we do pray for our governing leaders. We do pray for those in authority over us. Lord, those who are trying even right now to to make sense of all the mess of the the grids and structures and all of the stuff, Lord, that is so far beyond all of us. Lord, give them your wisdom. Give them your insight. Give them your understanding. Lord, as as they gather together to to make laws and, and, and to 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 create systems that that govern our our nation, Lord, that those laws and those systems would reflect the truth of your word, that they would truly be just, that there would be justice in our land, that there would be righteousness in our nation. And Lord, we do pray for the souls of our governing leaders. Lord, we don't know where they are. We don't know where they stand before you. We can get a good idea by looking at the way they govern, but Lord, only you know their hearts. And so, Lord, we... We ask you to save them. We ask you to touch them. We ask that your spirit would move upon them. Lord, that you would bring conviction into their lives and and conviction of sin. Lord, that you would place wise men of God and women of God around them. And and, and even young men and women like Joseph who could speak the truth of your word to unrighteous leaders, Lord, that could shape the, the course of government, Lord. In all of these things, we ask that you would save their souls, Lord. That's the the most paramount of things, Lord, that they would live in eternity with you. And Lord, of course, in all these things, we entrust it into your hand, your hand which is all-powerful and is is sovereign and is is ruling and reigning. And, And we know and we trust and our hope is that your plan will be accomplished. And we know that it will because you're accomplishing your plan throughout all human history. You're working it out in each one of our lives every single day. Lord, show us, even as we leave this place, even as we go out from here, as we begin to interact out in the world, moment by moment, show us what it looks like to not live for our glory, but to live to exalt Christ and to live for his glory in every interaction, in every conversation. Lord, that our, our goal, our aim, our bullseye on the target would to be to see you and your kingdom expanded and your name exalted. It's in that name that we pray. Amen. God bless you.